Hi, everyone. This is Mark Wefsesian. I'm the co-director of the Center for Law and Religion at St. John's Law School, and I'm joined once again by my uh, colleague and friend and co-director of the center, Mark DiGeralami, for another episode of Legal Spirits, which is our podcast series on cases and issues in law and religion. You can find past episodes archived on our website, lawandreligionforum.org, and also on Apple iTunes and Android and Spotify and other streaming platforms. Well, Mark, today we're going to talk about a case that's going to be argued next week. So at this recording, it's going to be argued next week and uh, at the Supreme Court. And this is a case that returns us to questions that have been asked for some time now about the relationship of states' public accommodations laws and First Amendment freedoms, whether of religion or speech. And in fact, it's going to take us back, this podcast, to an issue that we discussed in our very first episode six years ago. Can you believe it, Mark? It was six years ago. That's really something, yeah. Six years ago um, in 2018 on the UK case of Lee versus Asher's Bakery, which is uh, the British version of the so-called gay cake case, um, which is actually pretty cre pretty similar to 303 Creative, although um, none of the parties have cited it, I guess, because it's a foreign case, but it's very similar to that first episode that we did. So the court has had several occasions to address these issues. They've, they've been recurring in a number of states uh, as non-discrimination laws increasingly come into conflict with uh, the decisions of private persons in the workplace with respect to uh, same-sex marriage and LGBT issues. Uh, you know, Masterpiece Cake Shop, of course, from a few years ago is a very important case, but there have been others. Um, the court hasn't taken any of them uh, except for Masterpiece Cake Shop, but the court has taken this one. And there are lots of issues here involving free speech and anti-discrimination, uh, strict scrutiny, distinctions between the message and the messenger, ripeness issues, all kinds of things. So we're going to try to get through these issues and then predict what might happen at oral argument next week on December 5 and how the court might ultimately decide this case. Okay, great. So uh, in this iteration of the conflict, uh, we have Lori Smith, who is a graphic artist and a website designer in the state of Colorado uh, and the owner of 303 Creative. Um, Smith is a Christian, and she believes that marriage is the union of one man and one woman. Uh, she also, of course, believes in a variety of other things, including that she will not take on clients who wish to express disparaging or demeaning messages of any kind, um, she decides whether to take on particular jobs depending on what the expressive message that the client wishes to convey is. Um, and the business is designed to convey messages that she wishes to celebrate. Um, and she states these conditions plainly in her advertising materials. And Colorado, it seems, has stipulated both that her medium is purely expressive and that she does not discriminate on the basis of the identity of her clients. She has clients of different races and religions, sexual orientations, and so on. Um, it's the statement of her business's conditions that she says will get her into trouble with Colorado state authorities and in particular with Colorado's Anti-Discrimination Act. Now, if you remember, Mark, uh, Colorado is also the state in which Masterpiece Cake Shop occurred and in which, in fact, it's still being litigated in subsequent iterations uh, for uh, uh, trans issues and so on. So it's been an active docket in Colorado uh, for this set of issues. 
Okay, so the, the Anti-Discrimination Act in Colorado has provisions that prohibit places of public accommodation from directly or indirectly discriminating against those who seek services on the basis of sexual orientation, among other reasons. And this is the so-called accommodation provision that's at stake in the, in the suit. And then there's another provision. Um, this is, I guess, a relatively new kind of provision uh, with respect to these conflicts that prohibits places of public accommodation from publishing statements that indicate that the business will decline to provide services on account of a protected status. This is the so-called publication provision. So basically, Smith filed a suit looking for a preliminary injunction that would bar uh, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission from enforcing its laws and regulations against Smith's business. So this is a pre-enforcement action. Yeah, that's right, Mark. It's a pre-enforcement action. And I, I have to say, as a Fed courts guy, I'm a little unsure about the standing and ripeness issues uh, in this case, especially the ripeness issues. So, you know, pre-enforcement challenges to state laws are always problematic in terms of standing. There is a case, uh, the Susan B. Anthony List case from several years ago now, which indicates that standing does exist, a pre-enforcement standing exists if there's a credible threat of prosecution. And I suppose that that covers this. Um, ripeness, of course, relates to a slightly different issue. Ripeness relates to whether the case is being brought too early uh, because the, all the facts have not been, have not been settled yet. Um, and both of these doctrines, ripeness and standing, are quite manipulable. The court didn't grant cert on these issues, so I guess, I guess that the case will proceed. But I think it's worth noting that the defendants make a ripeness argument in their brief, that is, the Colorado officials. They they say that this record is not sufficiently developed to decide this case. Uh, that may have been waived below. That's a, that's a procedural issue, that argument. But, but the, the, the SG's office also, in its brief in this case, obliquely raises the ripeness issue. The SG says, look, we don't really know whether Colo exactly how Colorado is going to enforce this law. Um, some enforcement of CADA, of the Colorado Act, Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act. Some enforcement would raise First Amendment issues, the SG says, but, but not all enforcement. And interestingly, interestingly you know, Mark, um, Colorado at least has indicated, this was in the lower court, um, Colorado has indicated that it doesn't intend to apply this act to this case. Here's what, here's what they've said. They, they've said, the commission does not interpret this statute to require any business owner, regardless of religious beliefs, to produce a message that the business owner would decline to produce for any customer. So, you know, Mark, if Colorado is serious about this, I mean, I think that would end the case. I mean, they're saying, we are not gonna require you, that is you, 303 Creative, we're not gonna require you to produce a message for gay couples that when you wouldn't produce an equivalent message for straight couples. And so if that's the case, I, I genuinely ask this question, Mark. I mean, why, why can't the parties reach a settlement here, I guess? I guess there's going to be a question on which messages are equivalent. Um, I mean, what do you think? I think the justices, at least some of the justices, I think are going to ask about this. Yeah, I think you're probably right about that. Um, you know, much, much depends on the interpretation of that statement that you just that you just read. Yeah, I um, see that. I see that. Um, and and so, but 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 even still, that that still seems like a pretty like a pretty good case, at least for for some kind of a ripeness challenge. If much depends on it, let's let's wait to see how that statement gets interpreted in an enforcement action of one kind or another. So look, I mean, I, I think the, um, as you mentioned, I think the 10th circuit rejected the standing argument, but, but the ripeness argument, 
I said, I guess that's a new argument. I, I right? don't you think know. that's new. We'd have to go back and check the 10th Circuit, but um, it's certainly being made by the defendants and by the SG. So I would not be surprised at all. I mean, look, the court didn't grant cert on the ripeness question. Yeah. But given that the defendants and the SG's office are kind of raising this issue, I, I'd be surprised if at least some of the justices don't answer this and say, hey, maybe we should dismiss this case as improvidently granted because we don't have all the facts. I'll tell you, I'd be equally surprised if four justices voted to grant cert in order to decide a ripeness. Yes, I agree with that. And, you know, like I said a second ago, you're quite right, Mark. Uh, Like I said a second ago, ripeness is famously manipulable. You know, you know, you teach con law. This is a famously manipulable doctrine. um, So the court could go either way. And it's, it's not. So let's put it like this, listeners. Standing in ripeness, I say this as as a Fed courts professor, Standing and ripeness are not showstoppers when the court doesn't want them to be showstoppers. And I think there's some strong evidence that we got at least, you know, four justices here, probably more, who don't think it's a showstopper. I'm just saying I think it will come up. Okay. All right. So let's let's assume that that the ripeness and the uh, justiciability issues can be gotten past. Um, then let's talk about the merits a little bit. So so um, Smith loses at the district court. Uh, those her, her claims are dismissed after masterpiece cake shop and the 10th circuit affirms and it says basically this it says smith's wedding websites are pure speech and the result of the public accommodation law is that smith is required to create custom websites for weddings that she would otherwise not want to create and it further said the 10th circuit said it imposed that the, that the law imposes a content-based uh, restriction and it's a basic principle, sort of a fundamental core principle of First Amendment of free speech law, that content-based restrictions on speech trigger strict scrutiny. Um, so the court applies strict scrutiny. Now, you might think uh, as a result that, that Smith is looking pretty good here, but actually the Tenth Circuit held that Colorado satisfied strict scrutiny. It said Colorado had a compelling interest in ensuring access to Smith's quote unquote unique services. We'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, and because those services are speech, the court said they are not fungible, exchangeable with other services. And therefore there was no less restrictive way for Color- Colorado to achieve its compelling interest. Reader, uh, listeners rather will be familiar with this. We've talked about the strict uh, scrutiny standard in other contexts, principally of course, in the free exercise context, but the basic operation of the test, this certain uh, a sort of uh, shifting of of burdens and so on, is 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 consistent. Uh, there was a dissenting opinion by Judge uh, Timkovich, which said, uh, "Look, strict scrutiny is not satisfied here because it doesn't demand ensuring access to a particular person's services. Because if that were true, then laws like this would always satisfy." Uh, strict scrutiny. But as I say, we'll, we'll say a little bit more about that later on. Yeah. And listeners, we should also note that the Tenth Circuit uh, in this case also said the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act doesn't violate the free exercise clause because the act is neutral and generally applicable. Um, boy, those are always tough questions to Mark. You know, we've talked about those so many times, but the court did not grant cert on that question. I think they're quite happy to let that question lie for a while. Good. Yeah, we're, on, we're in free speech territory here, not not uh, uh, religion clause law. Correct. And free speech, Mark, is mostly your your area. So I'm going to ask you now. So so what are the claims by the plaintiffs of okay. the Supreme Court? Sure. I'm happy to I'm happy to uh, uh, to tackle those. Uh, so f- first, the, the plaintiff says the law compels service providers to speak in ways 
um, that they don't want to and that violate their convictions. And here, as it happens, their religious convictions. Now, the key case here that some listeners will know is called Barnett. Uh, this is a, a uh, very famous case, uh, the so-called compelled flag salute case involving Jehovah's Witnesses in school, in a school context, who, who did not wish to uh, say the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, but there are a number of other cases, including a case called Hurley versus Irish American Gay and Lesbian Alliance, um, a case out of Boston where the court held that government can't use a public accommodation law to force a parade organizer to include people in the parade that are conveying a message the organizer does not wish to convey. It, if it's a form of expression and the speaker's message is affected by the speech, then the government compelled it that the, and the, that the government compelled it to include, then that is subject to uh, strict scrutiny. Yes, and again, we're going to talk about this. Col the Tenth Circuit said that Colorado had satisfied strict scrutiny here, but we're going to get to that. That's correct. Okay. Now, in response to this this particular point, Colorado says, "No, look, you can say whatever you want. This law is just about regulating." to whom you must sell, which is why, which is what made me think when you raised that point earlier about just exactly what their response was, you know, it could be that if that's their response with respect to the expression point, then there is going to be a problem here, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there is going to be a conflict that that's the way that they're planning on interpreting. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, this, this may be just simply the response that they have at this stage of the litigation. Correct. We don't really know. Now, I should say, Mark, it's also, I think, relevant here that that uh, 303 Creative is not an expressive association, right? It is a public accommodation, and that might make a difference here. That's true. Yeah, that, that might make a difference. Uh, you're right about that. Although this is a, this is a pure speech issue, so in that yep. way, it's similar to a case like Barnett of compelled speech. Okay, that's number one. Number two, um, the uh, plaintiffs claim this imposition is, again, about pure speech, about the message being conveyed, not the person to whom services are provided. Um, uh, so plaintiff says, we don't have a situation here where Smith is refusing service on the basis of, a, of status, uh, but, but purely on the basis of message. In fact, there's evidence in the record that she was completely willing to serve uh, a people of different uh, statuses, different identities, uh, uh, provided that the message being conveyed was one that she agreed with. So the operation of the law is really, she claims, compelling her to say something that she does not want to, forcing her to change her message, um, not targeting the function of that message or the or the or the individual right and mark this is where the analogy to that uk case the case from britain comes in i think so in that case lee versus asher's bakery um a bakery declined to bake a cake for a gay customer with a pro same-sex marriage message and the bakers were christians and they were opposed to same-sex marriage um but the record showed that these bake that the bakers in this case in the asher's case would have declined to create such a cake for a straight customer too um, they objected to the message that was being conveyed, not to the messenger. And the UK Supreme Court, relying on that distinction, said that under UK law, the bakers could not be compelled to bake the cake because their objection was to a certain message and they were not going to be required by law to endorse a message they disagree with. And again, it's the same idea. They, they said they were willing to serve anybody. They didn't object to the gay customer because he was gay. They objected to the message, and at least for purposes of UK law, that was considered enough to take them out of the operation of the anti-discrimination laws. Now, there's a question here, Mark, and it's actually one that we've sort of talked about before in a number of other contexts. Um, 
about whether the speech, let's assume that this is speech, whether the speech here and in, in the UK case and in all of these cases um, is attributable to the speaker or is instead attributable to the to the client, right? Uh, in other words, uh, we, the kind of issue is, you know, is it is it really true when that when bakers bake cakes, they're expressing their own message rather than the message that the client wants to express? Yeah, and you know, Mark, we have talked about this. I've said in the past in these episodes, I'm always a little skeptical. I mean, it doesn't seem to me that most people think that the baker is himself or herself endorsing the message on the cake. Like I, I always say, if you know, you make a cake that, you know, happy birthday to the greatest kid in the world, doesn't mean the baker really thinks this is the greatest kid in the world. But I don't think that the court's going to go down that path to you. I don't think they're going to say that this is simply not the baker's speech. Uh, well, I, I agree with you. I guess I'm, I'm a little less puzzled. I mean, I, I agree in principle that we could have a society in which services were provided and the services were provided without any sort of sense of investment of, or expression on the part of the service provider or the product maker. But I just don't think that that's our society. If it ever was, it isn't ours any longer. Many companies are making it part of their mission uh, to express values that they think are their own, even as they are providing products and services or that reflect what their corporate culture stands for. You think about all of the advertising from large corporations on behalf of, let's say, diversity and inclusion or gender identity or messaging and this kind of thing. Um, so if if that is, if we accept that as, as, as part of what corporations are doing when they're doing business, why not a, why not a corporation like this? In any event, um, I agree with you definitely that uh, I, it would surprise me if, if the court said, well, this isn't really... Um, this isn't really about the service provider's speech at all. Um, but Colorado says, even if it is, right, even if we say that this is, that this is in this case for this website designer, her speech, um, there's no real way to limit this kind of exemption uh, from the law. Everybody is an artist, right? Everybody is a, is, 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 has an expressive message is that this rule is just unworkable. And in, in the brief, uh, the, the respondents brief, they actually have some nice examples, right? They, they say, you know, what if you have a company, uh, you know, a tree trimming company, right? Denver's own artistic tree care, you know, colon, a chainsaw is our paintbrush or Minnesota's artistic plumbing. A good plumbing job is a work of art, right? So they, they raise all of these to kind of show the, the absurdity of, of this kind of, uh, this kind of rule. Um, so that's that's sort of the second the second claim. The third claim is look, this law is not targeting uh, is not targeting conduct. Um, the the plaintiff says, but speech regulations of conduct trigger trigger a, a lower level of scrutiny. And Colorado says that this is the real description of uh, Smith's speech. Uh, if you can compare other cases, in fact that we've that we've talked about, um, Rumsfeld versus Fair is one where you have a uh, the government compelling law schools, for example, to open up classrooms to military recruiters. And the court said, well, that's really not a regulation of speech. That's a regulation of what the law schools can do, right, or must do. Uh, and Colorado says, this law isn't really about regulating sales practice, or is really about regulating sales practices. It's not really about regulating uh, speech. Um, it's about regulating who can buy a particular product or service, not about what the particular product or service provider can say. Yeah, so listeners, you can't see, but we're both kind of shaking our heads. This seems like a really weak argument to me. Colorado is 
is arguing this as if it's just a straightforward goods and services case. And it just doesn't seem to me that it is. Again, right. I, I agree with this. And again, it, 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 it gives me some skepticism about the ripeness claims uh, uh, up front that we were talking about. But at any rate, so that's the that's a third claim. And then finally, um, that uh, the plaintiff says, look, this is a content and viewpoint based speech regulation. The law is granting access uh, to this person's services only to those who disagree uh, with with the message. And as such, the law is presumptively unconstitutional. Um, so, well, you know, Mark, here, the again, we've said this before, the Tenth Circuit said that this law survives strict scrutiny. Mark, you, as I say, you're the free speech guy between us, Mark. Um, you would know better. How often do restrictions on speech satisfy strict scrutiny? Rarely, rarely. Regulations that are content or viewpoint based have almost never survived strict scrutiny. Um, they've only been, as far as I know, been found to uh, satisfy strict scrutiny by the court in very limited situations. Uh, speech at the polling place, for example, uh, a content-based uh, regulations is a case called Burson, which, which involves this issue. Um, material support to foreign terrorist organizations, um, uh, campaign solicitations by judicial candidates. Um, so those are just a very, very sort of exceptional situations in which strict scrutiny has been found to be satisfied. And I may say never uh, in a compelled speech context. Um, yeah, I, I, I can imagine. Well, let's go through the analysis. So the first thing is the state would have to show that it has a compelling interest. And of course, I think most people would say the court's precedents indicate that that preventing discrimination on the basis of the status is is a compelling interest. But but actually here, the argument has to be just a little different, right? It's that there's a compelling interest in requiring 303 Creative to do this. And the court said, well, this has something to do with, the Tenth Circuit said, this has something to do with the unique nature of her services. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the, uh, she is saying, look, there's a lots of, there are many designers that will convey the messages that I am refusing to convey. Um, and, you know, this other issue that I think the, the government raises that, you know, if we allow Smith to say this, we're going to, there's going to be a torrent of people that also are going to say, okay, well, now we don't want to say this. That's just not established in the record. So, um, so you're right that the 10th Circuit answered this by saying, well, it's, it's, it's not just access to services, it's access to her services because right. which speech are is, which, why? Well, so of course, everybody, right? Everyone. Everybody that, that, that makes anything is in some ways, nothing is ever the same. Um, and I, that's true for speech, but it isn't, doesn't seem to me to be uniquely true for speech, right? Mm -hmm. Any product that a person makes, any cake that they make or website that they design or whatever it might be is going to be unique. As I say, if that's, if that's, uh, all you, all you need to have a compelling interest, um, then of course it's going to be, uh, you know, the, the, the resolution is going to be narrowly tailored because it can only be achieved by access to that person's products and services. So this seems to me a deeply, deeply implausible way to interpret the strict scrutiny test because it would it would gut it, right? There would be nothing left of it. Right. And that's an interesting thing, too. I mean, there are other issues we could talk about, but I want to focus on this. So even if there is a compelling interest, it has to be narrow. The, the law has to be narrow, narrowly tailored to promote that interest. Right. And so um, one argument here would be, well, the state could do a lot more to narrowly tailor um, its its restrictions here. Like what, what could the state do in theory instead of just, you know, saying you must bake the cake? Well, so, uh, again, assuming that we're not talking about access to her services, in which case it couldn't do anything other than yeah. require her services to That's be a nice accessed. Point. That's a nice uh, point. If we're talking more, more broadly, 
um, about less restrictive means, assuming we're talking about a more generalized interest in, in access to products and services, um, then it seems to me you could say, look, you could interpret the statute to allow servers to decline projects based on message while requiring service based on identity or status. Well, but that's the point I was making, right? It does look, I mean, look, maybe we're, maybe people are a little skeptical, but Colorado has at least at one point in the litigation below indicated that they're going to do that. They're not going to require people to say things. They're not going to focus on on message. They're just going to focus on the protected status of the customer. Of course, they are talking, what they're saying is that her message is essentially doing, remember, that's the second argument, yeah. that this is really about conduct. Mm-hmm. So if, if, if their view really is that this speech is tantamount to conduct, then you leave no room for free speech at all. Right. right. There's a lot of hedging going on here because one thing, you know, one thing uh, listeners Mark and I were talking about before the podcast is why hasn't this case settled? Why haven't, you know, they could, uh, Colorado could say, all right, we're not going to make you say something that you wouldn't say to everybody. And she can say, I'm not going to discriminate on the basis of the orientation of my clients. And that would settle the case. But the fact that it hasn't settled, maybe you're right, Mark, suggests that there really are deeper, deeper differences here. Yeah. And there, by the way, there are other ways that there are other more narrowly tailored ways that you could that, that Colorado could set this up. It, it could narrow the narrow the enforcement of the law or the law that the law itself to physical spaces. It could limit it to services like food or lodging or medical treatment uh, uh, rather than extending it to something like, you know, web services for the sort of a rarefied or niche uh, kind of issue rather than a product or service that people really need. Yeah. I do want to mention one thing. We, we went past it, but there was one argument made that the state had a compelling interest in preventing dignitary harm to uh, to customers. And the court, the Tenth Circuit rejected that and just said, no, I mean, yes, there is an important interest in promoting or preserving the dignity of customers, but that's not enough to force someone to say something. That's not enough to get beyond free speech. The compelling interest here, I want to make that plain, is is access to goods and services in the market. That is the compelling interest here. Right. No, I think that's right. And and uh, I don't think the dignitary argument, uh, although it, it may be a favored one in certain circles, it doesn't seem academic to circles. academic circles. It's, it's not one that has ever gotten any traction. And I don't expect it to in this case uh, either. OK, so, that, so that's that's basically the sum and substance of the case now for the fun stuff, uh, the sort of larger implications or predictions about how the court will rule, Mark? I'll I'll go first since you're you're always going first, offering your view first. I'll I'll, I'll let you go second this time. Um, I tend to think this is going to be a win for for the for Smith. Uh, the court, if I had to guess, is probably going to formulate a relatively narrow rule for pure compelled speech matters. Um, they will get by the uh, ripeness issue, um, and that, of course, will lead to further litigation about the scope of what counts as pure compelled speech and and whether plumbers and and uh, tree trimmers also get the benefit of the rule or not. So I'm 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 guessing a 6-3 decision with a possibility of a narrower opinion written by somebody like the chief uh, and a broader one uh, by one or more of the of the more conservative justices. Yeah, Mark, I agree with you in the in the ultimate outcome. I, I don't think that the court granted cert in this case to affirm what the Tenth Circuit held. So you have to think they they took it because they want to they want to uh, reverse what the Tenth Circuit did. Um, 
I think they'll probably adopt something like a distinction from Lee versus Asher's, that British case. I think they'll draw a distinction between uh, discriminating on the basis of the message, which is protected by free speech, and discriminating on the basis of the messenger or the customer, which would which would run afoul of anti-discrimination law. And I, I expect the court will think that that's a distinction that should be maintained. Um, I am more puzzled than you by these ripeness issues. I don't, as I said a little while ago, I don't think they're going to be showstoppers because they never are when the court doesn't want them to be. But I would not be surprised if some of the justices ask about this next week at oral argument and if some of the justices write about this too. Um, but I think those will be dissents is my guess. But we'll see, listeners. So the court's going to hear this case next week. We'll keep an eye on this um, and see how it goes. For now, this has been Mark DiGeralami and Mark Obsessian. Uh, for the Center for Law and Religion at St. John's with another episode of Legal Spirits. You can find past episodes archived on our website, lawandreligionforum.org, and also on streaming platforms like Apple um, and Android and Spotify and many others. So it's been six years, Mark. Can you believe it? Congratulations. Congratulations to you. And listeners, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.